churches and then within churches, there are different people that are in varying degrees of theological awareness of this crisis. And people have to begin somewhere. Churches have to begin somewhere. I wonder if you can tell us a story of a congregation that maybe was socially unaware and inept to do anything about human trafficking, but pivoted to become more um, or stronger advocates in their community. Welcome to the CBF Podcast Conversation. We know that conversations matter. So each week we are grinding through the critical research to bring you the best stories and resources of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. I'm Andy Hale, your CBF Podcast host. And this year we're celebrating our seventh year of the podcast, bringing you even better interviews worth your time, attention, and collaboration. These episodes are not intended for you to listen to an island unto yourself. Get online, share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast with us on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF podcast community through our CBF podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We see you, Pasadena, California, Louisville, Kentucky, Beaverton, Oregon, and Frankfurt, Germany. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. We want to give a special shout-out to some of our listener supporters, including Carson Fushi, Caroline Bell, Cindy Foldenlore, Trip Hawthorne, Carlisle Mike Wick, and that generous anonymous donor that keeps giving in honor of CBF Grump. And before we move on, we want to give a word of gratitude to our annual sponsors, including Central Seminary, the CBF Church Benefits, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. This podcast is presented to you by Central Seminary. A historic Baptist seminary founded in Kansas that now is diverse, cross-cultural, and ecumenical with a significant global footprint. Leading with the values of community, empathy, growth, and tenacity, Central Seminary equips students with the theological knowledge, spiritual insight, and practical skills needed to lead in an ever-changing world. We cultivate an inclusive, multi-language community of reflection where critical thinking and discernment are welcomed and encouraged. Central offers numerous graduate degrees and certificates, including Doctorate of Ministry in Creative Leadership, Master of Arts in Counseling, Certificates in Chaplaincy Studies, and Peace and Justice Ministries, and much more. Most programs are offered fully online. To learn more, visit cbts.edu or search for Central Seminary Kansas City. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Kimberly Yim. Kimberly is a co-founder and executive director of SoCo Institute. Um, what she has in common with some co-authors is she is an advocate for human trafficking. Kimberly, thank you for joining the conversation. Thank you for having me. Well, let's jump right into the central focus of your work. Um, give us the brass facts of the reality of human trafficking numbers today across the world. Well, it's it's happening around the world in every town, country. Um, even though people think that slavery was abolished, it is a very thriving business. It is a business. Economics drives this. It's a $150 billion industry annual. That's yearly. Um, there's an estimated, the estimated numbers are 27 to 40 million slaves in our world today. Um, majority are... Uh, women and children, but definitely a significant amount 
of men and boys. Um, labor trafficking is probably, is definitely, some are estimating um, two times more than, some are estimating three times more than sex trafficking. More people are aware of sex trafficking, but labor trafficking globally is um, one of the largest growing businesses around trafficking. So that kind of gives you just kind of a general um, number. Uh, one of the reasons why that we are not entirely certain on the numbers is because it's a crime. People are not identifying going, I'm a trafficking victim. Uh, it's a crime, it's hidden, but it's not hidden uh, well enough that you can't see it and find it in our everyday communities once you kind of know what you're looking at. Hmm. You know, I think for a lot of people, when they hear the term human trafficking, they think it's you know a crisis in war-torn or impoverished countries. Um, what's the reality of human trafficking in, in the United States? Uh, you know, conflict and violence definitely uh, exacerbates the problem, and vulnerabilities are increased here in the U.S. Uh, it is definitely also thriving. Again, a majority of trafficking survivors and trafficking victims in the U.S. are actually domestics. Uh, people from the United States that are being trafficked. A lot of people assume that it's international, but a majority of uh, trafficking victims are in the U.S. are domestic. Um, in terms of anytime you're going to, the intersection with trafficking where vulnerability increases. And so looking at vulnerability factors really matters in terms of understanding where trafficking would most often happen. So if you're looking at vulnerability, you're looking at issues around poverty, homelessness, uh, uh, lack of food resources, uh, lack of jobs, um, broken family dynamics, um, uh, children in foster care system, um, families that have been impacted by incarceration, uh, drug abuse, any of those factors are going to increase vulnerability. Um, just minors in general, having, um, not having, uh, some would argue like the science behind just like a fully developed brain and be able to have decision-making faculties. Um, all of those things kind of add to the vulnerability of trafficking. So when we, when we can identify the vulnerabilities, then we can better begin to see like how we might be able to step in to supporting and preventing trafficking from happening in the first place. You've kind of talked about this a little bit, which is kind of the forms. What are the most common forms today um, that we should be aware of? So a couple of different, are you looking at in terms of the US or internationally, uh, there's two different kind of types of trafficking. There's labor trafficking and sex trafficking. Both include force, fraud, or coercion. So someone's being forced for a commercial sex act or forced labor with force, fraud, and coercion. Uh, kind of the legal language around that. Or in a case of a minor, you do not have to prove force, fraud, or coercion. In terms of where we're seeing this, uh, in terms of labor trafficking, there have been cases in agricultural, uh, construction, uh, hospitality in terms of hotel, particularly uh, housekeeping, um, restaurants, uh, chefs, uh, back off, uh, kind of back restaurant cleaning uh, personnel, uh, cases 
of trafficking with nail salons. There's been re recent cases here that uh, have, have provoked some investigations in Orange County around magazine sales, like traveling sales crews. Um, in terms of sex trafficking, you have kind of what some people are kind of assuming or some of the old, lang old language would be prostitution, but we, don't, we no longer use language does matter and the, the, the term prostitute or prostitution is commercially sexually exploited. So some of the kind of tradition, traditional looking um, brothel or street uh, commercially sexually exploited individuals or uh, a lot more online where people are lured both in terms of lured to leaving their homes and providing commercial sexual, they're being exploited commercially, uh, sexually exploited outside their homes, but it also can be online in terms of kind of forced into commercial sexual uh, images, uh, acting things out in people's rooms. Um, that is also part of the sex trafficking conversation in both adults and in minors. So I want to kind of zero in on a, on a personal level, because you've obviously written a book about this. You're uh, an advocate around um, this issue. Why, why human trafficking? What first raised your awareness of this issue? Um, why did you, you know, first feel that urge to do something about this? Well, it first began, I think around 2008, I was a young mom of a five and three-year-old. They're about two years, two and a half years apart. And my son was in preschool. My daughter was in kindergarten. And I was invited to see a documentary called Call and Response. And in that documentary, it highlights the global and domestic issues around trafficking, but it also interviewed some of the key leaders, Secretary of State, uh, Madeleine Albright uh, interviewed um, Congress people, non profit leaders. And it was the first time it gave me language around human trafficking and modern day slavery. And I, I was shocked. I mean, at that point, I had had my master's degree. I felt like I was a fairly educated individual. I was very involved in my church. And I was shocked to learn that slavery still existed and not only existed, but it was thriving. And that, that I might've been part of the problem in terms of the things that I bought and looking for cheap is, my cheap is best mentality. And it really rocked me to the core. I mean, I, I feel like in that season of my life, I, it was so disorienting because I thought, what am I to do with this problem? Like, I don't have power to make a difference. I felt very constrained as a young mom and how, why would God use this huge, massive global problem and burden me with something when there is nothing that I can do? That's how I felt. And at that time, what I did know, <laughs> kind of going back to like the academic side, you know, for what you don't know, you think, well, if I understand it, then maybe at that time, I thought maybe if I understand it, I'm, I'm off the hook because it's so complicated and so big. Uh, but the more I learned, and I, at that time I did, I, I bought every book, every, I signed up for every newsletter that I possibly could get my hands on to try to understand the problem. And the more I learned, 
the more heartbroken I was, but the more convicted I was that I have to do something, that there must be a response for me. At the end of that call and response movie, the director says, what is your response? And I just sat in that for about six months, a lot of prayer, a lot of tears, a lot of journal writing, and a lot of where do I begin? And I knew that I needed to have a response. And so I really feel like you know, God calls us right where we're at. And sometimes that's really hard to wrap your head around like, well, I'm just at this little street in this little town with not a lot of resources, but I did have a home and I did have a television and I invited friends to my house and we started, I started sharing documentaries. I started giving handouts to things, just sharing what I was learning and saying, there's gotta be something that we can do about this. And so out of that, I formed um, just like a local group of friends that said, we're all in. And for about four years, we put on um, kind of what we called, we wanted, our goal was to raise the level of awareness and engagement in our local community. So any, we started hosting events out of um, this wine and cheese bar in our town. One of the gals was one of the owners of that and closed on Monday nights. So we started hosting events and anytime we had an opportunity for speaking, we would. Uh, but at the time we were also inviting anybody we knew that was doing something around the space to come and speak and share about what they're doing and kind of the niches that they had, what part of this big problem that they were addressing. And that is kind of where we began. We began to do some advocacy in DC and with, um, you know, wherever, wherever we had opportunities. So along the way, I had an opportunity to write a book. Um, so in 2012, my first, I wrote my first book with a friend of mine. And anytime there's been opportunities of people interested or another opportunity to get the word out at that point, I just said, God, I'm all in. My answer is yes. So if there's an opportunity, I say yes to it around this issue. And um, yeah, that's how I know how it got started and kind of where I'm at here today. Yeah, to a certain degree, you know, there's a theological issue on whether or not people see uh, the burden of human trafficking from a standpoint of why it should concern us as Christians, if you will. You know, for many Christians, um, not just in America, but especially among evangelicals, there can be this detachment of Jesus' call to love neighbor as it pertains to certain kinds of neighbors, right? You know, based on race or ethnicity or nationality or immigration status or sexuality. Um you know, it feels like for some people, it might be more of a concern if they felt like the people being trafficked fit into their people group, if that makes any sense. Mm. You know, so I guess it's somewhat of a loaded question, but can you put a face and story with those mm. most trafficked and, and why that should matter um, to the Christian community, even if they don't match the demographic of, you know, white evangelical Christians? Yeah, that that would be concerning, right? I mean, I feel like when we look all through scripture, um, we, use, we use one of the first examples in First Kings and, um, or Second Kings 4, where a, a widow comes to Elijah, the prophet, or you know, the, the pastor in the town, and, and says, I'm concerned because there's creditors coming after her sons as slaves. Her, uh, she's a widow and there were, she had no resources and her young boys um, were going to be sold as slaves. And she comes to the pastor at that time, Elisha, and says, what do I do? And he says, what do you have? 
He doesn't say, I'm going to go around the community and kind of collect something. But he goes, what do you have? She says, I only have a small flask of olive oil. And, and for those of us, you know, it, it's a story that we're familiar with, but we don't necessarily see it as always in the lens of very strong best practice anti-trafficking work where she goes with her flask of olive oil and she, the pastor says, send your boys to collect anything, any, go to your neighbors and ask for empty olive oil jars. So it, it, the pastor's asking, what do you have? What are your resources? But it's engaging the family and it's engaging the community. And the boys go and gather these empty olive oil flasks. And he says, go into your room, go privately into your home and start pouring olive oil into these jars. And then, and God shows up in miraculous ways and uses the community. And then she becomes an entrepreneur and her boys are not sold into slavery. And it, she's creating a, a good that the entire community actually needs. It wasn't like a luxury item. It was an actual uh, needed consumable good in the community. And I think it's like some of the, such a great analogy, but right from the beginning, we see God intervening on behalf of the most vulnerable and he does not want his people, his children to be enslaved. Um, I think throughout scripture, we see uh, God's call to care for the alien. Um, I mean, he frees the Egyptians from slavery. I mean, slaves, uh, uh, frees the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. Uh, they're aliens in, as they're going to find their promised land. And along the way, freedom, both from um, physical bondage matters and freedom from spiritual bondage matters. And, through, and God cares about both of those consistently. I think when we look at any time... Um, in terms of just caring for your own, so often, and even some of the laws around gleaning, where you're to leave 10% of uh, your, you know, the, the harvest for who? For the poor, for the aliens who are coming in who need food and resources. Um, I think we're, we see that throughout scripture, God's care for the oppressed, um, those that are different. When he, goes through Samaria and the Samaritan woman, he goes out of his way to care for the other, for those that are persecuted that are not like him. Uh, I could go on, <laughs> but I think there's definitely a call uh, throughout scripture that God cares for the marginalized. And if we are to be obedient and to wear and to actually follow, uh, then we are to do the same. Um, I think there's a consistent calling around the poor, the widow, the imprisoned, um, the alien, the foreigner, both because we are foreigners and we're called to be foreigners. Yeah. They're called to care for foreigners. Well, I think as especially every people group and certainly every Christian people group, um, has to ask that question of who is my neighbor. I mean, that, that was the foundation of the Good Samaritan story and so many stories that center around this within Jesus' teaching. And so I don't I don't think it's unfair to to for us to push back on maybe the the particular Christian people group that I would assume most of us um, listening to this come out of, which is, you know, are are we failing to see who our neighbor is based on a certain ideology or a certain mindset about who we think 
we should love and care for. And I certainly think that each group, again, sometimes can struggle to see who their neighbor is. Uh, again, I mean, that's what Jesus, the basis of Jesus' teaching is helping them identify who they tend to overlook or who they discriminate against. And so I wonder if more Christians in America would be more concerned if we were willing to admit sometimes our shortcomings for certain people groups within our country um, as we disclose them as neighbors, if that makes any sense. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think there's definitely, I've seen just kind of an ebb and flow around the conversation around refugees and immigrants. And we uh, talk a little bit about that book uh, in our book that, you know, that is definitely a vulnerable population that we're called to care for. And I know that there's um, kind of, I think we seem to separate politics, um, that kind of the political, like how we go about it is different than the fact that we need to care about it and we need to engage. I think the how we get there and what that looks like, I mean, that's not my expertise, but the, the, the call that God has for us to care, that seems extremely clear as, uh, as a believer. And I think that um, there's been more and more, at least in my area where I've seen where people, it just hasn't been on the forefront of their mind that they don't see that as their neighbor. And then now with some of the new global crises around um, uh, the war in the Ukraine and Afghanistan, I've seen a heightened conversation around, okay, how are we gonna do this? How are we gonna help? I mean, there's been a local, uh, local response of, okay, what families are in and, and someone vetting uh, refugee resettlement, resettlement agencies because it's, they're definitely more aware of it now. Um, where that seems like to been a shift where I didn't necessarily hear that a few years ago. Um, but I think some of these global crises and the more and more stories people are hearing, they're beginning to identify and see themselves and recognizing those neighbors are, they're coming right here. Uh, and what, and how are we going to be prepared and how are we going to care? So, um, but I don't know if that's, um, I've seen a shift where I am at a little bit and I'm hopeful in that. Um, but I don't know if that's across the board or not. Um, but I, I think, I think the neighbor in terms of who are your neighbors, I think it's both who's like literally across the street from you, which a lot of people know, know people closer in other towns and they know the people that are literally across the street from them. And there are cases of trafficking, uh, cases that have come to light because people started paying attention to the people across the street from them or in their own apartment buildings. One of the very first trafficking cases here in Orange County, um, I think back in, I think it was 98. I think it was even, it was one of the first uh, prosecuted cases with new legal language uh, Trafficking Victims Protection Act. I think it was even before that was passed. Uh, a neighbor noticed that this saw this young girl like come out of her house, and then when the, when the younger kids were going off to school, kind of come out to hand like a lunch bag or something. Kind of caught the attention. They're like, I didn't, and they, she thought, I didn't know that that family had an older daughter. I've never seen her before, but she didn't. She looked kind of disheveled, and she just kind of paid attention. And she eventually called um, Child Protective Services and local law enforcement to say, I think this kid should be in school. I don't, something's not right. 
And they did it, and it was in a gated community in the upscale neighborhood in Irvine. And that's where Shima Hall was first found as a, as a young girl. And she was a slave of this family. She was sold to a family when she lived in Egypt and this family moved to the United States and they had young kids. She slept in the garage with no blankets um, and she ate the scraps and her job, she was their domestic slave. Um, But it was discovered because they were literally paying attention to the people across the street and what was going on. And so a lot of times in our busy lives, we're, we're seeing things that were connected even further out that we don't necessarily are looking right around. Um, another case was someone, had, it, they were working late in their office building and there was someone working late hours in the restroom and a woman just felt, it, she struck up a conversation and things seemed off and like kind of no eye contact. This woman was like, I knew just a little bit, but things were concerning enough where she just handed this woman her phone number and said, hey, call me if you need something. And this woman did. And then all of a sudden she had to immediately get law enforcement involved. But this woman um, uh, was working, like cleaning restrooms and stuff for this company, but not getting paid. And she was, um, didn't speak great English and there needed, just needed a lot more wraparound help. Um, so law enforcement got involved and it, yeah, it was a domestic labor trafficking case um, just here in Orange County. So it's some of these cases that are paying attention, having enough information so you can begin to see clear, a little bit more clear what is going around you. And then what do you do when you see something off? How do you report? This podcast is presented to you by CBF Church Benefits. At CBB, your benefits are our ministry. For 25 years, CBF Church Benefits has proudly served the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, providing retirement benefits and insurance services for CBF-affiliated church ministries and staff, along with CBF field personnel in Atlanta and around. CBB helps simplify the administrative burdens of your retirement plan, allowing you and your ministry staff to focus on your... CBB can also help you maintain your overall benefit package, including life and disability benefit and international medical insurance for international missions. Through generous philanthropic support, CBF Church Benefits recently launched the Financial Wellness Initiative. This new initiative offers ministers the opportunity to receive financial relief grants, financial education experience, and financial planning services. Please visit CBF Church Benefits website at churchbenefits.org to learn more about CBB, our benefits, and the financial wellness opportunities designed to help you thrive in your mission and ministry. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. 
This episode is brought to you by Youth Theology Network. Youth Theology Network is your resource for helping high school students take their next most faithful step. Their online hub will provide you with resources for and by leaders helping high school youth discover their purpose. 100 plus vocational discernment programs across the U.S. to help students explore their call and impact stories to remind you of why this work matters. Like you, Youth Theology Network is dedicated to seeing students live out their purpose, passion, and calling. Connect with us to learn more on how you can partner together to support the next generation of leaders by following us on Facebook or Instagram or by visiting youththeologynetwork.org. That's youththeologynetwork.org. So awareness is certainly one thing, but this resource you've created with your co-authors is kind of a a very proactive how to get involved. Um, Co-authored this book, Ending Human Trafficking, with uh, Shane Moore and Sandra Morgan. Um, this is a handbook for churches. You wrote as Christian leader, minister, federal task force administrator. I'm grieved by the missteps of some of my fellow Christians with savior complexes. I believe strongly that we must be the salt and light in the world, but it's essential that we evaluate what this looks like when we are engaging in the fight against modern day slavery. What's the story behind the, this resource before we get to the, the practicality of it? Yes. So Dr. Sandra Morgan, um, that was her actual experience when she was the director of Orange County Human Trafficking Task Force. And she sat on the White House appointed uh, public private um, anti-trafficking kind of advisory committee. And when in one of her meetings, uh, that was a big conversation of uh, and and some of the things, and she's also an ordained um, Assemblies of God pastor, and she just really struggled with, um, there was, I think we, she tells that story in the beginning of the book about, you know, what are some of the big, she was asked around this round table, what are some of the biggest obstacles that people are facing around trafficking? And a guy from Texas said, those wacko church people. And Sandy was just, she was stunned. She, but she also kind of got it at the same time as the Orange County Human Trafficking uh, Task Force Director at the time, she saw well-intended, you know, well-intended people coming from the church that wanted to engage, but acted before they were informed and began to see kind of this pattern of, oh my gosh, I'm going to go save them. And so this kind of, white savior mentality of coming in your white horse and rescue rescuing um someone in someone in poverty from another country and so it often it it was so painful both as someone from being somebody from in the church but working in the public square that she could see this how do i get how do i help people from the church do better in the public square. So they're not just acting without being informed on kind of what the systems, we kind of laugh, you know, like people say like, oh, there's Christianese. Like when you step into a church, it's kind of got its own language. We, um, I even, we even sometimes joke with my kids because my kids, my one son is pretty involved in their church. And, you know, we all, my husband's always like, oh, do you get poured into, right? So this is like these certain Christianese language that kind of happens that, uh, has its own definition and context. Well, that's the same when we the public square. There's actually systems in place and, and laws and language in place that as you engage in trafficking that you need to be aware of in order to partner well. And so 
that was really kind of the, the heart of this book is my co-authors and I, we believe deeply in the church. I truly believe that God has put people in these churches all over the world. This is his scattered hope in all corners. And the, the small churches, the big churches, um, all these different communities are there. And we really wanted to just to inform and uh, be a good resource to say, you are uniquely positioned. We believe that God has tremendous, you are there for a reason to help end trafficking, both in to proclaiming um, the good news and in doing so, if we believe that we are salt and light, if we believe they will know we are Christians by our love, that we need to love well where we're at. And in order to do so, to be informed of what's going on in our communities and, uh, and the world, uh, you know, the, and, the, and the world and the global uh, climate as well. And around that understanding trafficking, you begin to see what's going around around you locally a little bit better, as well as getting a clearer lens of seeing what's happening globally. I often talk about how when we go to the eye doctors, we, you know, they have those like those little things they slip in front of your eyes and they say, does this look better? Does this look better? Is this clear or this clear? And so our hope is that this resource helps clarify and we get clearer vision in seeing what is happening in our neighborhoods, in our communities, in our world that will help inform our actions. It'll inform our language it'll, so that we can better love those that God puts before us. Um, one of, like just like a very practical level, there used to, we used to, there used to be the language they would say child prostitutes. She's a child prostitute. Now we know with information that is not the language to use, that a child is a minor and cannot choose, like they are being, we recognize through the understanding the laws that they are not, whether they identify, see it themselves as victims or not is irrelevant. They're not choosing on their own volition to participate in sexual exploitation. This is not something that they're choosing. They are being this is harmful to them and we are protecting them. And they are now a child of, that's being sexually exploited. But the language behind that has been a shift, but you may not have known the shift in the language and how you begin to see a child who's being sexually exploited versus, oh, she's a child prostitute. But in being informed that the language is shifting because that matters in how we care for one another, um, all those, that's just a very small example of why language and information um, is, is so important for the church as we engage around this issue. You know, churches are, churches and then within churches, there are different people that are in varying degrees of theological awareness of this crisis. And people have to begin somewhere, churches have to begin somewhere. I wonder if you can tell us a story of a congregation that maybe was socially unaware and inept to do anything about human trafficking, but pivoted to become more um, or stronger advocates in their community. 
Yeah, so there, there was a church out in Yuma, Arizona, who um, they became a little bit aware of human trafficking and they became very um, passionate about, we have to address this. And they began to look at their resources and they were going to take money and kind of redirect it around trafficking. And uh, Sandy went out to do some training with them to kind of help them look at it and started looking at some of their resources and looking at their finances, looking what kind of programs that, and the things that they were involved with already. And she began to see that they had this after school dance program that would uh, pick up kids and take them to this, you know, this, this dance, uh, this dance class. And in order to do the human trafficking, they would have to kind of drop this program and they would lose the van. Um, and the more she trained, the more they began to see, because it's one thing to say, this is what you should do <laughs> for someone as an outsider. But as you start doing assessment, you start seeing, understanding what trafficking is, trying to see what is yours to do. What they, what they began to see is that if we, what we're doing around this after-school program is prevention around trafficking. So if we can inform our volunteers and we could double down on this after-school dance program and expand this program, it was more in their budget of their resources. Their, their uh, parishioners became more aware around trafficking. When they started engaging with these students' families, it just became a more of a community and they didn't have to redirect funds. They, what they realized is they were already doing something that was pretty good at prevention around trafficking is capturing these kids so they're not home by themselves. So they're not um, being vulnerable to predators, additional predators online even. So that's keeping them active. It was a very healthy after-school program. And um, I think that was like a, such a beautiful example that churches might already be doing something pretty spectacular that they just, if they had the lens to see, maybe they're asking them, these, these uh, adults who are working this after-school program, they, as they're building relationships with these students, they're asking just more different questions and they're beginning to see maybe there is something at home that they needed to follow up on, but, um, but it began to shift where they wanted to put their resources. And I think that's something else that we're hoping that this book with information and seeing we're hoping that churches really begin to see that they are instrumental in prevention, instrumental in prevention, and that the idea of pouring into people over programs and being strategic in where you're putting your resources, both financial, um, but also your resources within your congregation. Some of the resources that churches might even have is just their, you know, their building. When they begin to see, start doing an assessment, so their building is a resource, how can they, now they're around trafficking, maybe it's partnering with, um, a, you know, uh, a community disaster relief organization or uh, the city, uh, some sort of city programmer to identify, hey, in a case of a disaster, we would like our church to be used as home base or as a resource for this. 
it may not be something like on a day-to-day, but when they begin to start assessing all the resources that they have, and some of those resources could be, they might already know that they have, you know, five psychologists on hand that are ready um, to work pro bono work around trafficking or willing to go to do a little bit more uh, to help equip all their leaders and volunteers around be, about becoming more trauma-informed and understanding the impact that trauma has on individuals and the reactions that might help them um, care for survivors within their own community um, and help to care for one another in their own community. You know, this problem can feel insurmountable when you look at the sheer volume and modes of human trafficking. Um, For a local congregation that might feel their efforts are, are futile, why are partnerships critical for this work? And what are some of those partnerships that churches can get connected to in their communities? Yeah, I mean, it is definitely a big, it is, you know, it, it definitely, you could definitely feel the weight and magnitude around human trafficking as kind of the more you kind of get involved. And so partnerships, like you mentioned, are, they're absolutely critical. It's knowing what yours is to do. We, we use this example in the, in the book where we create the image of, fence posts, where we look at trafficking as this huge cliff that people can fall off and all these vulnerabilities are pushing people further and further to the edge of trafficking and they're trafficked and we have so much effort and resources in kind of scraping people off the bottom of this cliff and rehabilitating and kind of bringing back to a thriving life. And all that effort is absolutely necessary, very crucial work to do. But we want to go back up to the top of the cliff and say, what kind of fence that can we build around this uh, in front of this cliff so that we can help prevent people from falling off this cliff of trafficking? And so if we have this image of a fence and we see these fence posts are different things that their, their churches and what their church is kind of their expertise or kind of what they're known for, and it could be a variety of things, but those fence posts, but those fence posts are only, you know, poles with gaps in them if they're not linking to other fence posts. So that linking is that partnership, looking to who else is in this space um, and what are they doing? So that could be city council, that could be a local human trafficking task force that already exists. That could be other anti-trafficking organizations. It could be a shelter. It could be um, your representative, your state representative, your federal representative, a congressperson, a city council, informing city council about it. Um, It could be child protective services. It could be um, the juvenile justice system. It could be immigration, uh, refugee resettlement agencies, uh, other churches after school programs, could be a boys and girls club, a big brother, big sister, where you are looking to say, this is what I'm doing. I wanna know what you're doing and I wanna partner with you. If it is, um, if you're, if the church is getting involved in kind of caring for survivors, it could be asking the local law enforcement, what, how are you trained? What do you do once you find a survivor? What are those resources? We'd like to come and partner and and, and, and be a help and be a resource. Um, it could be telling the Boys and Girls Club, what are your gaps that you need? How can we help you? And it might be providing 
you know, extra coaches or partnering with them on a camp. Um, I can just, I can go on and on, but it's that looking across and letting somebody know what you're doing and that you want to partner with them. And this becomes, you know, this becomes, this is not a clean path of prevention, right? As we know, anytime we're dealing with human beings, things are messy, but you cannot, just because someone doesn't agree or you have the same ideology or the same beliefs, doesn't mean you cannot partnership. When the goal is preventing vulnerable populations in your community from being trafficked, if we keep those things at the center of the conversation and, um, and are patient and offer grace and differing opinions and are open to, you know, what, how, what do you need? I know that um, it, the, the thing that's hard, and I know it was hard for me, especially in the beginning, and I see people struggle with it, is the heartbreak and um, the injustice of trafficking is so brutal, right? Like that injustice and that anger that some people can get, which I for sure get, that just build up of how and why can you exploit someone like that? How can someone do that to somebody? Was just so heavy and uh, like just a deep feeling of both grief and anger. And so there's this need to have this reaction that's going to match that. So people always say, I want to just, I mean, I just wanted to like punch something, right? Like punch a bad guy, just take somebody and throw them into jail forever, right? Like that, that, um, like that disgust or that anger is real, but it has to be channeled well. And it has to be channeled understanding that this is a marathon. This is not a sprint. So when we're partnering, I feel that there's, I've seen it both from people within the church and people outside the church, people who are trying to partner with church people, people in the church trying to partner with the public sector is there's frustration that there's like missed expectations or inefficiencies, or we're not getting the job done quick enough, or, and I think we have to consistently remind ourselves and have a posture of humility that we need each other and together we need to do this. I, I was just talking to my co-author uh, Sandy about this just the other day. And I'm like, the more I learn about this, the more I'm aware that I don't know everything about this. <laughs> and the more, the more that you learn, the more that you know, that you realize there's so much you don't know. And I think that keeps us humble and it keeps us curious and, and uh, flexible and trying to find solutions to things. But I think that posture has to happen when we're partnering and partnering has to happen. We, I think I have seen, I have experienced and I've seen both in my brief trip to Cambodia as well as working um, kind of on the peripherals here in Orange County, the Orange County Human Trafficking Task Force, all these organizations that are partnering, they all are very well aware of who in the human trafficking space is not partnering well. 
you can see it, you can see it in their language. Um, they're, I'm very aware of organizations who want to just be the superheroes, who don't know how to partner, who are continually trying to highlight themselves um, and are not, they might be taking best practice stuff, but they're not sharing what they're learning. Um, and I think it's really, really, really important that we, we have to partner. There's no way an organization, an individual, doesn't matter how much money a church, there's no way it's going to happen on its own. It has to be in partnership. And I think that's um, not only as your listeners are looking to engage, but as in terms of actively engage with um, uh, their talents and their time, but also as your listeners are looking into giving or financially supporting is who they're who that organization is partnering with is very important. I think is a good telltale sign if it's a worthwhile um, nonprofit or ministry to get involved with. Um, yeah, but I think being wise uh, about where you're giving your time, talents, and treasures to, I think how that organization is partnering and their reputation that they have in being humble partners is very important um, in beginning to see kind of best practices. Last question, you know, we, we also have the, the power of the ballot. Um, how does vote, voting and advocating to um, our representatives fit into this conversation? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's very important. Um, I think uh, there's always new pieces of legislation that's um, coming up both state and federally. The Trafficking Victims Protection Act um, is kind of a, a federal piece of legislation that every year there's a tip report that's kind of reporting on both globally and domestically what we're seeing in trends and countries are ranked, including our own now, uh, on how well we're addressing this problem and what are some of the, the gaps that we're seeing. Uh, so understanding those things, uh, I think understanding the TIP report is very important. What I've seen, at least in my local community, um, that I think is sometimes uh, under, underestimated is informing local city council, building those bridges, um, building relationships with city council. I know that one of the things we saw in our local community was massage parlors that were popping up and that were very concerning. And, and the more people became aware around trafficking, the more concerned they became, and rightly so. There's been some big cases in Orange County that have come through massage places. Um, and there's different like signs to look for, but informing our city council, then they became, they wanted to, the city council then wanted to become, you know, informing our local law enforcement about it. Cause not every local law enforcement is being trained. So having citizens advocating, we want our local law enforcement trained around trafficking. Um, this is an important piece for us that when we call to report something, we want our local law enforcement to be trained to where they can receive that reporting well and they, they know what to do. Um, 
once something is reported. And so that relationship was pretty important, I know, for our local area. I think there's definitely some more work to do. But one of the one of the women in our area spent a lot of time on uh, advocating for um, our health department to being trained around trafficking because some of the massage issues, massage parlor issues had to do with, um, if you're gonna do a massage, you actually have to have a permit through the health department. So there was like inspection. So she began to see this issue a lot more um, dynamic and not just always oh, have to call local law enforcement and that's going to help the problem because uh, there was a lot more that the city council and local agencies could do to begin to identify and to draw some concern. So um, a handful of them were eventually shut down because health department began to see women, they started doing checks, they weren't meeting certain criteria, uh, permits were um, you know, not up to date. People that were working these massage places weren't in charge of their own documentation. There was just like a lot of issues, but that became a lot through advocacy and just saying, this is a concern and I'm going to continually have that conversation. This woman spoke up at the city council a lot. She had um, different resolutions that she wanted passed that were passed. And that was just very local city but that can happen at a state level. Um, and this is a unifying, I think, especially in our very, very polarizing political environment, it seems, this is a very unifying, nobody on either side of the aisle is saying, yay for trafficking. Everybody is saying, this is a problem. Um, this is a very unifying, that can, help politicians to even find a way to bridge certain gaps. Um, I'm sure in this landscape, people will try to find divisions as well, but um, this, I think we can advocate and we can, and advocating means calling, sending letters, building relationships, going to things. I know um, when I wrote, when uh, Shani and I were writing our first book, Refuse to Do Nothing, we, we talked about uh, the power of advocacy. And to be honest, at the time I thought, okay, I would love to meet Congressman Chris Smith. He was one of the first, uh, he was the first, one of the first authors of the Trafficking Victims Protection Act. And I wanted to meet him face to face and was really, you know, I think at the time I was like hoping to have like a really powerful quote for him, quote from him to add in the book. And, but I, you know, I, I wasn't, part of a nonprofit. I wasn't, I don't have like a fancy business card. I'm not a somebody in the world of, you know, political, you know, rearrange your schedule for me. Um, but sure enough, we reached out, we asked to schedule an appointment, told him we'd like to talk around trafficking. And I was shocked. He gave, and not everyone is this generous with their time, but this is a subject he's very important about. And he's not even my congressman, but he gave us 45 minutes of his time when we went out to DC and he spent so much time with us and talked about how, you know, how he got into it and the things that he was involved. And so when we asked him, what do you have? What, how can we help you? What would you ask for us to tell our people? How can we help you? And what are some things when we could take back that would help this work? 
And we were extremely humbled when he said, pray. He said, pray, pray, pray. He said, I cannot tell you how many times these bills would be dead in the water, but I have a constituent, a constituency of people back home that have gathered around this work and have been praying for these bills and they've been praying for me. And I, and Shane and I left, we sat at a cafe and we're like, did we just hear a, a congressperson basically admonish us to pray? <laughs> and, and it was, and it's true. And I think that as much as we're talking about, I think it's really important for church to partner with and to be advocates, but they cannot underestimate the unique power and position they have and the access they have to the creator of the universe and his constant telling us to pray and pray consistently, pray all the time, pray alone, you know, in your privacy of your own home, pray with other people where two or more are gathered. It's the both privately and corporately, I cannot speak more to the unique position that church has around prayer. And I truly believe it's underutilized at the moment on strategically praying around this issue of human trafficking. And, and I think that, um, I think through the last, oh, has it been 12, 15 years? that I'm constantly circling back around this same point, um, even in my own individual life that I, and I know this because I've heard it from, I've, I've read it through scripture and I've heard it from people at the tops of our government who've worked around this, that prayer is absolutely essential. Um, and even, and I, I was so reminded again, even in our forward, um, Congressman, I'm a Congressman, Ambassador John Cotton Richmond in his foreword, which I, we did not prompt him in this direction. He just was to, he just offered to write a forward for us. Um, but he also speaks of this issue. Um, he, he wrote at the end of the foreword, a survivor of human trafficking once told me that the only thing her trafficker could not control was her ability to pray. She prayed to God for her pain to end. She prayed that people would do more than just be informed and more than merely have distant, distant compassion. She prayed that people would take smart strategic action that would restore her freedom and allow her to thrive beyond her trauma. God answered her prayers by using his people in many different professions to bring hope. And when we read this, we were like, oh my gosh, here the ambassador who's been work, who had been working on this issue um, professionally as a federal prosecutor and then as an ambassador, he's telling the same things that survivor was saying that the only thing the trafficker could not control was her ability to pray and how essential it was. Our guest is Kimberly Yim. She's co-author with Shane Moore and Sandra Morgan for the book, Ending Human Trafficking. 
Uh, Kimberly, thank you for uh, making the time to have this conversation. And uh, more importantly, thank you for creating this incredible resource that guides Jesus followers to love their neighbors, especially the neighbor that is the victim of modern day slavery. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And if you have any further questions, um, if we could help any way, we would love to. Please don't hesitate to ask. We need to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. Have you ever wanted to study the life and teachings of Baptist ministers whose work in civil and human rights changed the world? Have you ever wanted to read and watch other speeches given by Dr. King? Are you concerned of the way King's life, teachings, and legacy are used by contemporary political and religious leaders? Are you a local pastor or church leader and want to take an evening course at a seminary? Apply today to audit the life and theology of Martin Luther King Jr. at Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. Talk by Dr. Lewis Brogdon. Visit bsk.edu backslash mlk to learn more. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF Podcast on all major platforms, including iTunes, Amazon Music, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platform. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's Central Seminary, the CBF Church Benefits, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. Check out cbf.net for more information about church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and much more. And, uh, oh yeah, I think we mentioned that you should uh, join the listener support community at cbf.net backslash podcast support. 